you guys know, coming up here next Sunday and next Tuesday will be the Christmas services, the candlelight, and all of them are as identical as we can make them. There's uh, 18 when you count all the campuses and all the different services. And one of the things we challenge you to do is grab these mini invite cards and give them to every single person you know. And I would say this, I got an email this week from a just, just uh, 12-year-old young man. And I was like, this is very encouraging. And he understands what uh, we're about both as a church and what we're going to look at today. He says, Dear Pastor Bruce, my mom is letting me use her email address. I'm not allowed to have my own email yet. My name is, I'll just give you his first name. My name is Tucker. I'm 12 years old. I'm in the sixth grade and he gives his school. And my mom and I regularly attend the Arden campus. On Sunday, talking about last week, I heard your challenge to give away as many Advent Christmas cards, uh, invitations as I could. I took your challenge, and in total, I have given out 51 cards since Sunday. All right, that was, by the way, this was like Tuesday, so he did it in two days. I gave away all the cards that I picked up, just like you asked us to. I think you're a really good pastor, and I don't like cats either. Merry Christmas, Tucker. So it's like, Tucker's a baller. We like Tucker. We gave him a sweatshirt, actually, when I saw him in between services. I'm like, you understand uh, what it's about. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I got a challenge before me, and it's going to take me about 40 minutes to try to unpack this because what my job is uh, for both myself and for us as a church is in some ways to deconstruct everything that we begin to hear uh, since kindergarten, all right? Ever since we were a kindergartner and your kindergarten teacher says, you know what, you're just a, a perfect little snowflake and, and, all, and it's all about you and it's all about you, all the way through to everything about Christmas, to everything about even in some ways American Christianity about 25 years ago, the church in America, man, we bought hook, line, and sinker into this. And so what I want to try to do is get us off what we can just call the cul-de-sac of normality, where we just go round and round and round and round and hear the same thing over and over and over again. But I'm going to tell you on the front end, it's not going to be super easy at the front end to hear, okay? This is not going to be like an ambient that you take and you're like, I feel awesome. This is going to take a little bit of time to get to your joy. But I want to tell you, though, get the first part of it, and this is the most, I'm not exaggerating, this is the most life-altering, perspective-changing, a paradigm-changing truth that you and I can have. And so I'm going to have, I'm going to say it a few times today, I'm going to have you say it a few times just for, uh, for repetition, and it's, again, it's going to be tough to swallow, but great joy if you can get there. Here's what it is, okay? First part's easy, uh, God loves me, like I know that, I know that, I know that, but it's not about me. Now, I put this in quotes, and I want you to leave that up there. I put this in quotes because I want you to personalize it. It's not as hard to say, you know what, uh, God loves us, and it's not about us. But personalizing it means it brings it to bear on your marriage. It brings it to bear on your dating. It brings it to bear on your purpose. It brings it to bear on your self-image. It brings you to bear on everything. All right, so at the count of three, what I'm going to ask you to do is uh, I'm going to say this phrase, and at the count of three, you're just going to say it along with me. You're like, I don't want to. Well, you're just stubborn then. So most of us are going to do it. So the count of three, God loves me and has, it's not about me. One, two, three. God loves me, but it's not about me. Sorry. Um, that's what we're going to do. That's, you're like, what's the sermon about? That's the sermon. We're going to use a guy that is, so Jesus actually said he's the greatest that ever lived. Greatest guy that ever lived. His name is John the Baptist. 
Now, John the Baptist, two things about him. John the Baptist is not what you'd call a seeker-service kind of preacher. All right? John the Baptist is your outlaw cowboy. He is out in the desert. He is preaching a very, very difficult message. He starts off his first sermon by saying he addresses the crowd, and they teach in seminary school, figure out something that will build a bridge to the audience. You know what his introduction was? You bunch of snakes. That's what he starts his sermon off of. You're a bunch of vipers. That's who you are. All right? And he is, uh, you're like, why do you call him John the Baptist? Uh, listen, <laughs> it's not because he's Baptist, okay? He's, he baptizes a lot. It's not like Mark the Methodist, Peter the Presbyterian. It's not John the Baptist. It's not what it is. Uh, John was a baptizer, and so that was kind of what the moniker they put on him, John the Baptist. Now, if you're kind of new to Bible study, when you turn to John, John, the book of John, that John that wrote the book of John is not the John the Baptist that John is going to talk about. So all that being said, John chapter 1 is kind of where we're going to be, and we're going to look at a guy named John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is often connected with an Old Testament guy whose name is Elijah. Elijah is the guy that would talk trash, and he really would. Uh, some of you all probably played sports, and you, usually you look down at people that's like, yep, 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 talk, 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 talk. But believe it or not, both John the Baptist and Elijah talked a little noise, all right? Uh, I'll, I'll give you one example. Elijah in the Old Testament, there's this really kind of epic scene where it's Elijah versus 850 false prophets. And they're all having this big contest on whose God is bigger, whose God is bigger. And all these 850 are like, our God's bigger. And they do all this stuff to try to make their God respond. And read the text carefully. I'm not making this up. He actually starts talking trash to them when their God does not respond. They're like, where's your God? He's on vacation, all right? He went to Hawaii. He actually says that, he actually says, where's your God? Is he on the toilet? Has he gone to relieve himself? You're like, you shouldn't say that in church. I'm just quoting a scripture, bro. I mean, that's exactly what he says. Has your, has your God gone to the bathroom? So in that whole vein, John the Baptist comes in. And again, John the Baptist is not that, it's again, but he's so healthy for us. He's an example of our statement. You know what? God loves me. God loves me. But it's not about me. So, all right, let's jump in the text. We're going to work our way through like 11 verses. All the application is like the back half. First half is we're getting in there. Back half is application. So here it is, John 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. By the way, it's a great word, testimony. At church, you're not supposed to have biographies. It's not like, hey, this is the biography of such and such. He's such a great man. It's the testimony. Testimony is about what somebody else does. So this is John's testimony. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So let me stop there for one second. At this point in time, John's ministry is getting real popular. Tons of people are going outside. It's like he's outside of Jerusalem. Tons of people are going there. He's like the new preacher in town. All right, that his crowds are growing. You and I would say he would be like a tr he would be trending on Twitter. He would be the one in our day and time. Hey, come preach this conference. Hey, come write this book. Hey, come do this. Every this is the perfect time if you're trying to figure out how do I gain more market share. This is the perfect time to say it is about me, and that he does the exact opposite. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the man. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Jews thought that Elijah would come back to be a forerunner. And even though John says, I'm not the person of Elijah, Jesus actually says, you know what? He fulfills the prophecy by speaking in the same sort of way that Elijah did. But he said, I'm not, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no, verse 22. And they said to him, well, who are you? 
we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Really, that's the $100,000 question. What do you say about yourself? What do you say? That's like the big, that's the big question. If somebody like, what do you say about yourself? What's your identity? What are you about? What is your purpose? What is your mission statement of life? Here's what, here's what John said. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Make straight the way. Make straight is the idea of prepare the way. Point the way. Point people to this way. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? In other words, what are you doing acting like you're the man if you're not the man? If you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. Now check out how John epitomizes, listen, God loves me, but it's not about me. John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. In other words, Jesus is in the crowd already. They don't recognize him. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is humility. This is knowing who you are and who Jesus is. Remember the scene in John 13 when it's the perfect picture of servanthood when Jesus takes the bowl of water and washes the disciples' feet like the lowest thing somebody could do. John takes it a step further and says, you know what? I'm not only not worthy to wash his feet, I'm not even worthy to take off the sandal to wash his feet. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, and here's the verse. This is like, this is, there's like several verses in the Bible that are pictures of the rest of the Bible. This is one of those. I cannot emphasize how important for you to understand your Bible what verse 29 of John chapter 1 is. And I'm going to try to do a five-minute flyby. Some of you are like, I don't even know how to make sense of this book at all. And it's got, it's got it's like, it's like 66 books and there's all these different authors and different places and different themes and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to give you like a five-minute flyby here in just a second, but you got to understand this verse. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, behold means Don't miss what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is super, super important. Now remember, his audience at that time would have been primarily Jews who knew the Old Testament. When you talked about their Bible, their Bible was the Old Testament. So what John does is John takes the picture of the Old Testament to his audience and says, this is the fulfillment of all this stuff. But here's what he says. Behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of God that takes away. What in the world? Because you and I don't use that kind of terminology. We don't use that kind of typology. Talk about lambs, that that means nothing to us. So here's what I want to do uh, a little bit. I want to sort of take a a flyby because really in a nutshell, verse 29 is the gospel. Verse 29 is the purpose that Jesus came. It's the Bible is about Jesus, all right? The Bible is not. In the Old Testament, God was grouchy. In the New Testament, God got happy. That's not the Bible, all right? It's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one unifying message in the Bible, and the message you see, the message is about about Jesus, which, by the way, that is the reason we don't, quote, unquote, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, okay? Because the Old Testament, in shadow, shows us what Jesus was in substance. So here's what, I, here's what I thought might be helpful. I'm going to take uh, five minutes. I'm going to give you kind of the big picture, the meta-narrative of the Bible. All right? So this is, these are like 
the next four words are like the spark notes of your Bible. I think we did this one time in a different way, but let me give you the spark notes from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of the last book, to the book of Revelation. Five minutes, whole Bible, ready, go. All right, number one, you get creation. Creation is Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God steps out on the front porch of heaven and creates. He creates light. He creates water. He creates land. And then the pinnacle of his creation was man and woman, Adam and Eve. They were to be the vice regents of his creation. He says, I want you to rule and reign over my creation. And it went awesome for a while. He's like, be fruitful, multiply, run around naked, have all this awesome time. You have everything you need, one thing, one boundary, just don't eat from one tree, eat from these billions of trees, don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? So it's going pretty awesome, wouldn't you say? I mean, you couldn't ask for anything better. That is, that's like creation. So here's a second chapter. Second chapter starts in Genesis 3, and that is the fall. The fall is that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, chose to reject against God's purposes for their life, chose to be God and make it about them instead of about worshiping God and making it about him. So they went, they took it, they blamed each other. Adam goes, the woman you gave me, and the woman said, the snake that you allowed to be here, and then God sent a curse. And the curse was over all of the earth. The curse included creation. It was emotional, it was physical, it was spiritual. It was all of those things. There was a curse there. Adam and Eve tried to run from God. They tried to hide from God. They actually took fig leaves and tried to cover themselves. And by the way, that is the picture of the world's first religion. How am I going to do? What do I have to do to cover my sin, cover my shame? Even in the fall, even in the midst of Genesis chapter 3, God's redemptive story is being worked out. Jot down some in your notes. Genesis 3, 15. Genesis 3.15, in Latin, they call it the first gospel. It's the word proto-evangelium, which means first gospel. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head. That means like that's a death blow, but you will strike his heel. What he's saying is God will bring forth one born of a woman who will suffer, but will ultimately crush the head of the snake, all right? And so here's the chapter three. You got creation, you got fall, you got redemption. And so from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to almost, you could basically say to the book of Revelation, is this third chapter. So here's a flyby of this one. It's a big chapter. This is a big section, so you got to understand it. And so you go from Exodus, second book of the Bible. The book of Exodus is about God's people whom he called out, but they were in bondage. God set them free. It sounds like the gospel, right? We were enslaved. God set us free. That's what he did with the children of Israel. He did so one of the ways is through passing over. He convinced Pharaoh, let my people go. Let Charlton Heston lead them through the Red Sea, do all of that stuff. And so Passover was the first picture of what you and I know is called substitutionary atonement. I want you to take an animal. I want you to kill it. I want you to put the blood over the doorpost as an expression of your faith, and I will pass over, okay? Then you get to Leviticus. Most people, when they do the one-year Bible reading plan, they get to Leviticus, and they die on the vine. Why? Because Leviticus is so gory, so detailed. What is the deal with all that stuff? The book of Leviticus has one thing about it. It is one equation that God is trying to get across. If you and I sin, this is what it costs. You sin this way, it's going to cost a bull. You sin this way, it's going to cost a lamb. You sin this way, it's going to cost a goat. That's the book of Leviticus. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God is giving pictures of his redemptive plan. For example, the whole tabernacle system or the whole temple system where God is killing all these animals, it's saying what? Sin is costly. Sin is horrible. And sin is going to cost a lot. 
One huge deal was actually called uh, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, God says, one day I want the high priest to go in there and first he's got to get himself ready. He's got to kill an animal for himself. He's got to do all this stuff for himself and his family. Then he goes and he puts on a new robe, washes himself, all that stuff. Then he takes two goats and he takes them and he takes one and he slits his throat and lets it bleed out. You're like, dude, what are you telling us all this for? I'm going to get to it. He lets the goat bleed out. The other one he takes and they put a leash around it and they lead it out in the wilderness and shoo it away. That is called the scapegoat. One was actually bearing the wrath of God saying, you know what? Somebody has to die for this sin, but the substitute is the one goat and the other one is what? Taking away the sin, taking it away. So all this goes on year after year after year after year. year. Thousands. Can you imagine the stench in Jerusalem? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of animals. And then God goes silent for 400 years. For 400 years, God doesn't say a word, no prophetic voice, Nobody crying out in the wilderness. And then John the Baptist comes along right here in John chapter 1 and looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God. No more. It's going to be a bunch of animals. That's the Lamb of God. And he takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' ministry starts three and a half years. He goes around. He tells stories. He provides miracles. He does all that. So the religious establishment gets mad at him. They eventually crucify him on the cross. They crucify him on the cross. He does the work the Father sent him. He says at the end, he says, it is finished. They take him down. They put him in a grave. Three days later, he comes up out of the grave. He meets with and eats dinner with all these different kinds of people. Then he ascends into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit of God to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And then the last chapter, which we hadn't seen yet, is consummation. Consummation is when Jesus comes back. Jesus does not come back as a little baby in a manger. He does not come back as a rabbi telling cool stories about farming or trees or birds. He comes back as a judge. He comes back and he judges all people who have not repented of sin and embraced him as Savior. And he comes back for his sons and daughters, wipes away every tear from their eyes. No more pain, no more tears, no more of that stuff at all. That is the last chapter. And so that is where John ends up saying this. John, how he knew all this, you don't know, but it's like, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about him. Now, understand the best way you're like, well, how's he going to love me if it's not about me? I mean, if it's not about me, that's what love is. It's making it about me. And so that's kind of what I want to try to unpack just a little bit. God does love you. He died for you. Don't die for people that you do not love. But it is not about me. John's point of his whole life was to point people to Jesus, to make much of Jesus. That's your point. Now, you don't, that's my point. Doesn't mean you have to be a preacher, but the values that you have, the priorities that you set, the job that you go to, the fact that you and I are supposed to be salt of the world, we're supposed to be the light of the world, salt of the earth, light of the world. Uh, Guess what? That's for the glory of God. The temptation, though, is for you and I to get the glory. The temptation is every day that you go home and you want to make it about you. About two chapters later, Jesus' ministry is exploding. John's ministry is going down. One of John's disciples comes up to him and says, Boss, these other people, they're going to Jesus, and they're leaving you. In other words, hey, we're, we're, we're losing We're losing the numbers. They're going to Jesus. And verse 29 and 30 of John 3 is amazing. We we don't have to turn there, but here's what he said. He said, listen, listen, all I am, I'm just a groomsman at the wedding. I'm just a groomsman at the wedding. And then he says, that classic, classic one, great memory verse for Christmas. He must increase and I must decrease. 
In other words, I gotta be small, Jesus gotta be big. Question for you to ask at Christmas is, how does that work itself out where Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger and I get smaller and smaller and smaller? American Christianity typically starts with the assumption that we are the center of the universe. Churches are designed about saying, you know what? It is about you, it is about you, it is about you. You are the most important being in the universe. Your good, your glory is central to everything. When that happens, loved ones, then we eventually and inevitably conclude that God is our supernatural divine butler. And he is here solely to make our best life now. And that's not what the Bible's about. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. The Bible is about God and God's glory. Now, I can tell that some of you are like, uh, I don't appreciate you speaking to me this way. So let me, uh, let me just drive it home further. Uh, somebody said it this way. Somebody said, we are in desperate need of what he called a Copernican revolution of the soul. A, you're like, what, what gibberish are you speaking? Again, we've used this illustration before, so I don't want to sit in here, but Nicholas Copernicus was the guy way back in the day when everybody thought everything revolved around the earth. He's the one that came up and said, no, the earth revolves around the sun. It was such a scandalous thought. He didn't even want to publish the papers until shortly before he died. He does that. 150 years later, a guy named Galileo picks that same thought up and says, listen, listen, the sun is the center of the universe. The earth revolves around it. They didn't like it 150 years later. They excommunicated him from the church and stuck him in jail. Why? Because, no, it has to be about us. It has to be about the earth. And the corollary is this. It is so good when we realize we are not the center. When we realize, when you realize, when I realize I'm not the center of the universe, I can tell you it is the most freeing experience. I've just tried to think about it all week in all the different relationships and driving and appointments and errands and people And just this week, thinking about it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's amazingly freeing and joy-filled. Because just think about it this way. If you are the center of the universe, if it is about you, do you know all that has to line up in order for you just to have a decent day? For you to come in with the end, it's like, you know, I had a good day. Why did you have a good day? Everything's got to line up. Your spouse has got to behave right. Your kids have got to behave I-26 cannot get backed up, okay? It cannot. Your team on Saturday has got to win. Your team on Sunday has got to win. Your fantasy football team has got to get the appropriate points. All those have to come together for you to have a good day if indeed it's all about you. But loved one, it's not all about you. It's not about you at all. It's about God and it's about God's glory. Now, what I'm gonna try to do is go through these quick. I went way over in the first service. That's what some of you were like, hey, people weren't gone in the first service. Well, I'm gonna do this quicker, all right? I'm gonna do this quicker. I'm gonna give you a bunch of verses, so like think quickly, jot it down, just jot down the references, and you can look at them later. If you take notes, you actually get, it's a, you get a bigger reward in heaven, I think the Bible says somewhere. It's in Deuteronomy. So um, here's, here quickly, here's what it is. Exodus, Exodus 14, four, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying, okay, I'm gonna set the people free. Yes, because I love them. Yes, because I have an appointment for them. But bottom line is, I'm gonna get the glory from setting them free. They're not gonna sit around and go, man, those Israelites are such awesome, awesome walkers. They're not at all. It's like, God did that, God did that. Why does God do stuff like that? For his glory. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
The heavens declare, this is called general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. It says the heavens are saying there is a God, there is a God, there is an architect, there is a God. And what this means is when you and I see stuff that is so much bigger than you, it is naturally humbling. You stand in front of the Grand Canyon like I mentioned last week and you're like, nobody stands in front of the Grand Canyon and go, man, I am such a big deal. Man, I got like a PhD. Nobody does that because it's awe-inspiring. We were over in Africa about four or five years ago on a mission trip and a buddy of mine that went, one of the doctors here, we were out there and it was like, man, there's no ambient light. There's no nothing at all. Nothing. We looked up and like, look at, I mean, the stars were unbelievable. Just amazing. And you know what? The scientists say, astrologers say, all we could see is 9,000 of them because that's all the naked eye could see. 9,000. I think it's like 9,076 stars. That's all we could see. But even that was so humbling. I was like, that is so, so humbling. And then I read this, that actually, as far as all the stars, the estimate of the number of stars right now, they estimate it to be three septillion, all right, and constantly growing. That is three with 24 zeros after it. Three with 20, that's how many stars and he knows them all by name. I can barely remember all the people's names in my connect group, much less all those stars up there. You're like, are you trying to make me feel small? No, you are small, okay? You are small, so am I. I'm small, I'm small. You're small, you're like, I'm offended because you're small, that's why. You are small, so am I. God is big, Psalm 29, verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. In other words, he's the one that is due the glory. Think about it this way. A lot of our frustration is due to the fact that we don't actually buy into that because we think actually instead of ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name, instead of going through each and every moment going, you know what? It's about God. It's about God. How does God look? How does this make God look awesome? We're like, you know what? It's about me. Now we don't say that. We just act that way. Or at least I do. I do. Okay. I act that way so often. I'm just reading my own mail. Don't look at me like that. Cause some of y'all do the same thing. Here's the way it fleshes itself out. Okay. It fleshes it out sometime when I just walk in the door. I fl- it fl- when I walk in the door after a long, hard day, my mindset is, man, it is about me. It's about me. I've worked hard. I've been with God's people. I've tried to teach them and shepherd them. And so now it's about me. It's about, it's about me getting the remote. It's about me having what I want. It's about me getting rest. That is, it's not about me. It's not, I'm not even in second place, honestly. You know, I'm not. I'm like the bronze medal winner. It's like God first, others second, particularly my wife. And then thirdly, it's, it's about me, all right? Bronze medal winner. How about this? You go, to a, you go to a restaurant and the waiter's not on it. And you sit there and you get front. That waiter, tea, 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 sweet tea, sweet tea. And you're like, man, they are not on it. They are not on it. Why? I'm going to get up and leave. You know what kind of tip you're going to get if you don't get this tea refilled? You know what you're saying? It's about me. It's about me. It's about my glory. You're supposed to be taking care of me. How about this? Uh, okay. You're going to be able to challenge this on your way home today. Um, you'll be able to do it on 26. I did it on Brevard Road this week. So here's what happens. Uh, uh, see, I would have done it. I've done the opposite so many times. Every once in a while, I'll tell a, a story where I had at least a scintilla of success. So uh, normally my deal is when uh, somebody gets in the left lane. A uh, guy, what's the left lane for? Passing. Fast. Go Fast. That's the left lane. The right lane is for what? Slow. 
somewhere people have switched that and they see they see a sign and they you're like they don't read it correctly because what I think they think it means is if you want to go slow and text then get in the left hand lane and go really slow man so many times and I'll just be I've told you before, now I have a truck. So my truck kind of sits up. It's not like, now in a year, it's really going to sit up, all right? I'm saving up for some tires to be like authentic redneck. And it's going to be like up on you, okay? It's going to be, but even right now, even right now, somebody's driving slow. I'm like, run on there. It's like, flipping those, you know, flipping, flipping the lights. It's like right hand, get in the other lane. And then half the time, it's one of y'all. And you're like, hey, pastor. I'm like, oh, okay. So, but this time, this time, this time, this time, this time, I was on Brevard Road. I was on Brevard Road. And man, I was coming back from Hendersonville and I was trying to get to a meeting. I had like five minutes to get there. I know, because I take that way from house, I know that it takes like five minutes to get here. I'm trying to get there. And I get behind and I still remember it's a Buick Rendezvous. No offense, no offense. If it's you, bless your heart. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I got behind a Buick Rendezvous and man, I think, I think they're drunk and texting. I think they're doing, they're, they're, they're drunk texting. That's what they're doing. Cause man, they're like going slow and it's a one lane road. Man, I cannot get behind it. I'm like, you know, flash are trying to get up. It's like, hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. But I don't right now. All the, you know what I'm saying the whole time? Every time I'm flashing my lights, I'm saying, it's about me. It's about my glory. I'm the point. Pay attention to me. God's like, no, it's not. And if you just, if you and I can just say, it's, it's not about me, so much frustration. Now, I'm not giving you permission. Don't drive slow in the left-hand lane. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you and I will just take that, we will say uh, a lot of frustration. So here's, here, let me give you a couple more. Um, Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. You ever been deep sea fishing? What do you have? You have water. He says there's going to be a day when all that is, it's filled, just, like the, just like the water covers the sea, so will the earth be filled with the, glory, the knowledge of the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Pat you on the back, tell your, your church is great, hey, we love your music. No, it's so that you would then, they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what it means to glorify God. It means to show evidence that God is at work. It means for somebody to sit back and go, there ain't no way that that person would ever stay with that guy or be that sacrificial or serve people who can never pay him back. That's just glorifying God, evidence that God is at work. John eleven four 4 says this illness, he's talking about an illness. So you're in a trial right now. Put this in the back of your mind. We'll come to it here in a couple minutes. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus is struggling with the cross. And he said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this purpose that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or golf or bike or run or live or have babies or do whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. And so the point again is uh, you're not the point. I'm not the point. Now, one quick objection before I show you how this can really be a blessing to your life. A lot of you are like, well, if God does love me, I would be the point because that's kind of what love operates like. And we don't like people that make themselves the point. So how can God say he's the point? If you understand that our greatest joy is when God is the point, that's why David would say in Psalm 16, in your hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is joy. It's like when I'm 
got you at the center and I'm out here. It's like I got so much joy and fulfillment. I mean, take the, take the whole Copernicus deal. I mean, say the sun, personify the sun. If the sun all of a sudden says, you know what, I'm going to let the earth really be the center, and I as the sun are going to go out here and replace, then the earth would be destroyed. All right? it, it would not make it. And in the same way, it is to our destruction when we say, you know what, I'm the point. God is kind of out here in the orbit, which, by the way, makes that's why church is a terrible hobby. That's why Christianity is a horrible hobby. It's expensive. It asks a lot of you. It asks you to be not self-promoted, but self-denied. And so that's why if, if you're going to go with Christianity, just go all in. Don't sit on the fringes. Just go all in. Adrian Rogers, a preacher from a long time ago, he correctly said, he said, the most miserable person in the world is not the lost person. It's the saved person that doesn't have Jesus on the throne. You know why? He said, because the person that doesn't have Jesus on the throne, he can't enjoy the world because God won't let him. And he's not enjoying God because the world won't let him. And so the whole point is, is just pick a side. Just pick a side for your own joy. So what are we going to do with this? Here's, uh, let me give you about four or five uh, Let's take, about, let's take areas of our life. Now, these are, I try to pick general ones. Let's take relationships. Let's particularly take uh, dating relationships or marriage relationships. So let's say dating relationships. And first, if you're a single in here, let me, let me, let me say one thing. It's not wrong to desire. If, you, if you're, if you're a, a young lady, and it's not, it's not wrong for you to desire uh, to be married one day to a, and you're thinking Mr. Right is coming this way, and it's not wrong even if you're, Mr., if, you're th- if you're a guy and you're like, hey, I'm thinking about this, you know, what is my wife going to look like? I'm not, some people are like, oh, it's wrong for you to even desire. It's not wrong at all to desire that. Where the trouble comes in is when you think that that girl or that guy is going to fix what's broken in your heart. It's not going to happen. You will put so much weight on them that it will crush them thinking that, okay, Mr. Wright is going to come in here with six-pack abs, bringing me roses every day, fix me dinner, take care of the kids, and I will be fulfilled because he will complete me. Please don't do that. That will crush him. That will crush him. They call that codependency, but it will crush him. Guys, the same thing. you thinking... I'm an insecure guy, but when I'm around here, I'm secure and I'm confident when I'm with her. She will not complete you. They are phenomenal as spouses. They are terrible as gods. If you make your Mr. Right or Mrs. Right an idol, it will turn on you and you will idolize them at the front end, but when they don't actually do what you think they're supposed to do, you will go from idolizing them to demonizing them and saying, you failed me. That's when people go, you know what, man, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm on, the, I'm on the nail right now, okay? I'm on the nail. That is why what we hear over and over and over again is you get the seven-year itch, you get the 10-year itch, you're married, then you get on Facebook, and then all of a sudden you reconnect with your high school sweetheart, and you're like, then you start thinking, well, I miss my, what do we call it? I miss my soulmate. I miss my soulmate. I miss the one that was going to complete me. No, that's idolatry. That is idolatry. And you are going to dishonor God by chasing after a fantasy and leave your covenant marriage, which God says, you know what? If you understand that I brought you two together to glorify me, you know what will happen then? Then what will happen then is, hey, guys, you'll be able to love her a little bit closer like Christ loved the church. 
Ladies, you know what you'll be able to do? You'll be able to respect him even when he's not acting like in a super awesome, awesome way. You know why? Because you understand, we're here to glorify God together. And I know what a couple of you are saying. I know a couple of you wives, I'm just going to be blunt. Some of you are like, well, you don't know my husband. His name is Beavis, and he is a, that's what he is, and I can't respect him at all. Some of you guys are doing the same thing. You're like, well, my wife's name is Cray Cray, and I, I mean, you think we came here nice, but she's kind of she's crazy, and she's really high maintenance. Okay, hey, check it out. Check it out. The bride of Christ is the church. You don't think the bride of Christ is messy? You don't think the bride of Christ is high maintenance? You don't think the bride of Christ, you know what love says? You know what the gospel says? The gospel says, I know you, I've seen the ugly parts of you, and I'm staying with you. That's the gospel. And so when he says, husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church, it means, you know what? I've seen you without the makeup on. I've seen you without all the stuff everybody else sees, and I've seen those parts, and we're here to glorify God, and I'm staying. You don't think that would switch your relationship around just a little bit? It wouldn't. It would be for your joy as well. It would be for your joy. Just think about relationships. You could think about husband and wife. By the way, uh, some of you all, uh, I almost want to ask it. I couldn't ask it in the first because it goes to the other campuses. But I almost want to take a survey. And I'm sure we got some newly married people in here. You got some newly marrieds. And let me just say, if you think it is your spouse's job, <laughs> it's your, the reason for your spouse's existence is to fulfill you they're going to let you down. They're going to let you down. And as I said again, they can't fix what's broken. Jesus can do that. But if you make Jesus number one, that allows you to then love them and be in covenant with them and have a healthy relationship with them and have an awesome marriage if that's it. But if you flip them, if you flip them, All right, how about this? Uh, let me do another one since there wasn't a lot of amens there. So let me, let me do a second one that's kind of hard. All right, uh, let me take two more, three more for your time's sake. Okay, you're going through a hard time. If you understand, I'm not the point that God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. God's for me, but it's not about me. Then here's what will happen. Just think about your trials. And some of you are going through those right now, and Christmas is amplifying those. John eleven four. 4. By the way, we could spend some time with John the Baptist because John the Baptist, you would have thought that John the Baptist is everything right and then he lived happily ever after and wrote a book and went on a conference. That's not what he did. He actually gets thrown in jail for doing what was right and he actually has some very difficult dark days and he actually sends one of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you, uh, gotta make sure, are you like, you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? You know what Jesus doesn't do? What Jesus doesn't do is Jesus does not come running and break him out of jail and they live happily ever after, okay? John gets beheaded. John the Baptist gets beheaded, not for doing what is wrong, but doing what is right. So let's talk, talk about your pain for a second. The other scenario, John eleven four, Jesus is talking to people he dearly loved. It says clearly he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, probably his closest friends in his ministry days. And Lazarus gets sick and Jesus doesn't show up when they thought he should show up. And so he shows up finally and they're not happy. Verse four is like a great one for you just to put in. When you go through a trial, just put this in there. He said, this sickness is not unto death. He said this, he says clearly, he says, this is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God. 
Let me put it in a simple term. Before you became a Christian, the movie was about you. The movie, you were in, you were in bold, you were the big lettering, you were at the front of the movie. This movie's starring and you were at the front, you were the first name up at the back end. It's the movie, the movie of your life. But when you come to Jesus, when you actually become a Christ follower, you are still in the movie, but your name is no longer the top one. You're like one of those small, tiny little names in the credits at the end, five minutes after the movie ends. That's who you, now you're still part of it. So it's an awesome movie. So at the end of the movie, people are like, that's awesome. That's awesome. You like have a small part. I have a small part. But nobody stands up and goes, way to go, that extra guy that was like in the movie for 2.6 seconds, I'm cheering for him. Nobody does that. That's us. That's us. You're like, well, that's, that's bad for my self-esteem. It actually is awesome for your self-esteem if you understand it. Because even in your pain, what happens to you then becomes less important than how your story serves the more important story, the bigger story. And so in your pain, you got financial, relational, physical pain. Now your pain, the question is not, why do you do, why don't you love me? Why are you allowing this to happen? You can actually somewhere get to the, how is this pain going to actually glorify you? Or your prosperity, everything's going great, the stock market's up, kids are behaving, wife is awesome. Prosperity, how is your prosperity then? God, how do I use my prosperity for the goodness of the goodness of God, the glory of God, the glory of the gospel. How do I do that? Self-esteem, let me put on that real quick. Um, Self-esteem, we're all kind of a mixed bag of kind of, I got a little bit of, I got an insecurity over here, I got ego over here, I got over here. What more approval? Insecurity is basically living for the approval of other people. What more approval do you need to have than the life and the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross? who looks at you, sees the ugly parts, and says, I love you. He doesn't love us. Now, listen, this is going to be hard for some of you, but it's awesome when you think about it. He doesn't love you because you're awesome. He loves you because he's awesome. And the reason that's the best news you could ever hear, because if he loves you because you're awesome, what happens when you're not awesome? When you're not awesome, if it's based on your awesomeness, then it is bad news when you fall into that sin again. But if he loves you because he's awesome, that is the most security you can ever have. It's like I've seen you at your worst and I love you and I've committed to you. That's why all those words we love to talk about and sing, I'm redeemed, I'm adopted, I'm a son or daughter of Almighty God, I'm, all these things, they're all based on what he has done. That's why you have the ultimate security is you know what? It's all wrapped up in my approval. It's all wrapped up in what Jesus did on the cross, not what others say about me. It can be about your stuff. I'll give you two more real quickly, and then we're going to close. It can be about your stuff, like all the stuff God gives you. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. God even says you enjoy it. Part of glorifying him is you enjoy some of the stuff God gave you. You save some of the stuff God gave you for future times, all right? You don't want to hit 65 and have like $1.50 in the bank. That's not awesome if you can help it. But he also he says to share it. But here's what he says. Take this literally. Think about today. Just take this literally. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So how do you eat or drink to the glory of God? How do you eat or drink to the glory of God? Take it literally. Like, what's well, a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. He's like, in the most mundane things, do it for the glory of God. Here's what it is. You take the stuff that God allows you to enjoy and don't let it terminate on itself. That's what a lost person does. That's what a pagan does. This is a great steak. Thankful for the cow. This is a great 
Weather day, thankful for the weather. Mother nature, no, no. What's a Christian do? Christian goes to Papa's and beer, gets those fajitas, and he doesn't just go, man, good cow. That's not what he says. Christian looks at those fajitas. Christian looks at those Papa's fajitas with chicken and steak and shrimp, looks at all of those things, looks at that guacamole that comes along with it, and doesn't just say, man, thanks for the avocado, thanks for the cow, thanks for the chicken, thanks for the shrimp. That's not what he does. He's like, I thank the God who made the cow, who made the avocado, who made the shrimp, who made all that stuff. Thank you for making it taste good. You know why? Because you could have made it taste like manna. You could have. He could have made chocolate taste like a cracker. Could have tasted like the little crackers, those little unleavened things we use in the Lord's Supper. I mean, he could have made he could have made it taste like that. You're like, well, that's just too far. It probably was too far. But let me just let me. I mean, he could have made it. No, what do you do? He's like, God, thank you, man. You're a good God. You made this stuff taste awesome. Thank you for that. That's why you hold hands and you pray at the start of a meal. You're like, well, somebody's gonna think I'm a fanatic. No, you're just giving glory to God. And lastly, is this uh, this whole book right here. The way you read your Bible is super important as well. Just the way you read your Bible. This Bible, listen to me, it's for us, it's not about us. You might have been raised and said, the way you got raised, some preacher said, you know what? David and Goliath, Goliath of the trials in your life. Be a David. Take those stones, sling them, and slay your giant. Well, what happens when you miss? What happens when you're out of stones and you got no more to throw? You know why? When people happen, when, when that happens, like when I was trying to, my giant was my marriage, my giant was my habit, my giant was whatever, and all of a sudden those giants are still there, and then you lose your faith, and you're like, what happened? Because you're not David. You're not David. You're not Daniel. The book is not about a bunch of heroes you and I are supposed to emulate. It's not. Dare to be a Daniel, have faith. That's not what it's about. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Daniel. The book is not about a bunch of heroes. It's about a bunch of villains with one hero. That's who it's about. So don't put yourself in the story as the hero. You know who we are if you're really looking at that old David and Goliath things? We're the sniveling Israelites over there going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then Jesus comes along and slays the giant. That's what the book is about, from the first book to the last book. And so the way you read your Bible is like, God, show me this story that's about you. And um, we're going to do this. Here's, here's basically what I'm going to have you do. Okay, uh, count of three. And now this time I want you to do, God loves me is like soft. It's good. It's awesome. It's reassuring. And the best way we experience God's love is when we understand, you know what, the healthiest, most joyful thing I can do is understand it's not about me. So... I'm going to say one, two, three, and you're going to go kind of in that smooth baritone, God loves me. But then when it gets to here, you're going to use some diaphragm. It's not about me. Got that? Can we do that? Okay, all right, 915 did it good, so I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a chance. So kind of soft with some conviction, all right? Three, God loves me. But it's not about me. Pretty good. One more time. God loves me, but it's not about me. That's awesome.